0: hi and welcome to rule of carnage i'm glenn ford and i'm here talking to mike hutchinson that's my name uh about designing better miniatures games today we're going to talk about deployment not just the deployment phase of maybe troops and units but also terrain deployment table setup the bits and pieces that you have to go through at the the start of a game to get people having stuff on the table to play with. It can be a tricky area to to write because you're front-loading a lot of information, and we'll talk about front-loading a little bit, and it's also one of the places where you have to set out a lot of your terms, get through a lot of jargon early on, stop referring to things as miniatures or models or stuff or things. We're going to try and go a little bit into maybe why it is that some of the games that we've written, certainly games like A Billion Sons and Gaslands, have so completely avoided a traditional deployment phase or a deployment zone, what some of the pros and cons of doing that are, and and why some of those decisions were made. So we'll open up, I think possibly the first thing to talk about with deployment is terrain deployment, setting up a table, literally uh, getting a play space in, in, on the table for people to start engaging with. And it, it's a big area because people have a huge range of terrain. There needs to be a lot of definition. Now, I know, Mike, that in Gaslands, there's obviously setting up the, the racetracks. There's a certain amount of defining of terrain deployment that needs to be needed to be done there. How would you how do you go about explaining to someone how to set up a table from nothing? How would you how do you present it to somebody who maybe has never considered setting up their own playing surface before?
1: um i think it depends quite a lot on the game's audience to begin with so i think if you in terms of thinking about who your game is for if you're if you're aiming for a more experienced player or you're assuming a lot more experience with miniature war games with with your rule set or you're designing something that's intended to be a sort of as new player friendly as possible feels like there's Potential shortcutting that you can do if you are assuming some level of experience, because certainly for me, setting up terrain and the the layout of the tables has sort of been, I don't know, a kind of instinct I've learned over many years, but I, I don't really know I don't really know what it is that I do I just sort of shuffle things around and then I learned some other things from kind of the tournament war game scene a bit as people tried to pay more attention to it, but to be honest with you the way that I do it in for example gaslands is pretty cheaty because I just say quite descriptively I just say, you know, set up set up some the debris of a broken uh, wasteland. And that's a total cop out because it essentially says set something up, play your first game. Maybe you have a good time and you do that again. Maybe you have a bad time and try a different deplo- uh, deployment of terrain if you figure out that that was the reason for it. Mm.
0: And I think that's I I think that's one of the things about the terrain deployment, the table setup that's so interesting is that a bad table setup can absolutely kill a kill a game experience. It can totally ruin it. And yet that's, so that's... many
1: it's 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 so it's so right because um i only played one game of warhammer forty thousand in the sixth edition of that game because i had finished i'd come back to the hobby i'd finished a um let's call it a fully painted tyranid army it was basically sprayed black and then uh dry brushed but um minimum
0: three I, colors <laughs>
1: I painted the eyes white and the teeth white um the the table was almost blank I put my uh, tyranids down on the table the towels were put on the other side I took all my tyrannids off and I never played the game again I just didn't have anything mm. and of course skir- miniature skirmish games tend to thrive on having lots of line of sight blocking terrain and mm. there are some uh rule systems which are quite explicit about how much there should be and they they try and define terms such as you know break the table into four quarters and make sure there's more than three pieces of terrain in each quarter and each piece of terrain should be you know 50 mil square or, or larger and so on and so forth which of course is all basically bobbins because it depends what pieces of polystyrene you've cut out and stuck onto cardboard and painted grey um, that you happen to have around but at least it gives the player a sort of idea in their mind of what that what that might look like whereas my cheaty gaslands one of just like set up a desert wasteland is it's sort of speaking to the cinematic or the narrative element of terrain setup which you know feel feels honest and in some way usable but at the same time like how do you write the, the the terrain setup rules for a uh, science fiction combat game that's intended to be used across any number of entirely mm. fantastical you know death worlds and space stations and industrial complexes mm. and underground and overground how do you ensure yeah, a mean, fair game with the rules that you write in that paragraph
0: yeah i think what once or twice i've sat down to write a a, a sort of comprehensive set of rules for setting up terrain for setting up a table for a given system and it is it's absolutely soul crushing it's borderline impossible to sort of say, what okay... lost
1: procedural <laughs> Warhammer setup. Uh, rules. But
0: it is, because once you start saying, okay, buildings can't be within a certain distance of each other, or they've got to be a certain size, or they've got to allow for this, or got to allow for that, or you, once I sort of attempted a system where you say, get your terrain, mush it into a quarter of the table, so long as it doesn't feel more than that, that's the right amount of terrain, then start spreading. And I don't know, do you think that maybe... There's a little bit of cheating, for, but because I, I totally agree with you. A lot of miniatures games, a lot of miniatures games designs, basically go, you'll, you'll get the hang of it. Play a few games, you'll get the feel for it. You'll put in too many woods in your first game, not enough hills, and then you'll play a few and you'll play a few. And then eventually, whenever I go to a club or a tournament, you see pretty much the same sets of terrain for most game systems. Like if you go to a Warhammer tournament you'll see similar sets of terrain for your club because everyone knows what is fair and is it weird that everyone knows that and everyone's built those heuristics for that but nobody's made an attempt to write it down particularly i
1: think it uh, no i don't think it's weird and i think that's because it would be it would be probably too restrictive and or frustrating to execute as a player you'd read through those things and it would be like well I I know what I want and I think that after a few like it doesn't take that many times of playing games for you to sort of figure out what you like the look of and that probably matters almost as much as what the game is designed to play across I think what I will say is I think it's particularly strong to feature images of what the table should look like as part of your rules there's actually something that I realizing now I've completely failed to deliver in any of my products but a couple of really interesting examples recently are the way that Adeptus Titanicus opens the, the rule book has this beautifully sort of m- modelled uh, industrial area but it's not so complicated that you can't imagine building it for yourself even though it's all you know all nicely sculpted and everything but it sort of describes oh I'm gonna need some things about this high and some things about this high and oh it looks like it's quite a lot of open space and then you realise there's large bases in play and another really interesting example is Relic Blade. Sean's. Sutter's game, where there is a, I think there's an image of it in real terms as well. That he's he's drawn a very beautiful illustration of what like kind of like the fantasy game board that you would draw in a notebook and go. Oh, one day I'm going to learn how to make this, and so that really like that says, wow, it's really packed in, and it's more like playing over a a Games Workshop diorama than it is playing on a normal table. And the third example I think is really interesting. On this is uh, Carnival, which in its yeah. second edition has. A set of MDF terrain that you can actually buy from um, TT Combat, who sell the game these days. And in the front of that book, there's a very clear, clearly photographed c- city of Venice. And in that, it seems like it almost matters more than any game because that game mm. sort of relies on you having canals and water and stuff that you just genuinely wouldn't normally have in a game. Yeah,
0: no. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think Carnival's a great example because the, the terrain is so central to that game, and there's so much of the uh, the, and it's, it's a it's a great game, but so much of it's about running across balconies and jumping from awning to awning and running along walls, and and as you say, there's all
1: the canals and uh, and the rules for it, for that. It's interesting actually because one of the other. <laughs> I know, I know. I bring up Malifaux in all cases because um, I'm just besotted with it. But one of the things that I adored about the first edition of Malifaux, um, and I found very, very, very inspirational as a model maker, even before I, you know, even setting aside the the playing of the game, there's a system that they provide in that in the, in the back of the book for generating what your table is going to be. And it's a totally ludicrous system because what it, what it basically asks you to do is flip out some cards and then decide to set up either like the inside of a theater or like some kind of giant swamp with huge yeah. stone circles in it. It's like, I don't have all the terrain just lying around for 52 incredibly unique <laughs> areas. But what it does achieve instead of that is you look at that and go, wow I want to make a library a library would be amazing I wonder how I'd make a library or just like some other kind of because that game was trying to take you out of you're just shooting in a wild west town and you've got some rocks and some and some buildings it it, by providing a essentially unworkably complicated uh, terrain generation system or yeah, like table generation system, I guess, in, in some ways, it actually provided way more inspiration from a hobby and model making point of view than Gasland saying set up a broken wasteland. Mm.
0: I mean, we might actually come back to to this uh, when we talk about the slightly more out the box versions of, of deployment zones. But one of my favourite rules for deployment is in Malifaux, there's the, uh, the parlay scenario where, uh, I don't know if you've ever played it, you deploy by playing cards face down onto the table and then you have to put your people onto the, those cards so it, the, the the deployment is totally mixed up and integrated and, and not at all split out and then you have to deal with the way you've been set up like that and I, and I remember reading that and, and thinking that is apps that is it's genius and it's it's a really sort of brave Game design thing to do to put that yeah into it's called that.
1: it's called blind deployment and in second edition it flips out on a joker and I've played it a few times and I'm pretty sure that's why billion suns is the way it is
0: because
1: <laughs> um, with that deployment we were probably going off topic with that deployment it's not fair but it's extremely mm. story rich and sort of stories leap out very early on mm. um, yeah like, but back, I... But I guess back back to the back to that phrase out out of the box and. The, the question of terrain and, and table setup and maybe the barriers to that. There are, I think, some games that have done quite a nice job of establishing a norm for what a table looks like through paper terrain. So both Infinity hmm. and Drop Zone Commander both provided very inexpensive cardboard terrain in the box, which sort of gave you a stable of stuff and described roughly the area it was supposed to cover. So you set all that stuff out and you went, all oh, right, well, that's what a drop zone commander table looks like then. Fine. And I can then replace that with, you know, sturdier, more beautiful models if I want. And in infinity, of course, it really mattered because if you have any sort of coherent sight lines in infinity, the game is, um, is over hmm. rather quickly.
0: So should we sort of round that up by saying terrain setup? up, a picture speaks a thousand words, don't be overly strict on how people set up their terrain because they're going to have a random collection of things of different heights and, and sizes and they're the best judges and maybe let people figure it out after a few playthroughs.
1: I think, yeah, because I think the most critical thing is how dense is the terrain and that appears to be best told in a, in a photo.
0: Cool. Cool. Um, So once, obviously, people have got the terrain on the table, there is a deployment phase. So for anybody who doesn't know, if you're not wildly familiar with, with these sorts of games... Generally, in a, in a miniatures game of the kind we're talking about, you spend a little while gathering your forces, picking them from army lists, wherever it happens to be. Uh, you set up a table, and then you've got to get the models onto the table before they can start blowing each other to tiny, tiny pieces. And the the part of the rules that gets models from table into a game zone makes them into units, makes them into active parts of a game it defines what they are and what their relationships are with each other at that point is the the deployment phase so i think one of the things about the deployment phase that's that's interesting as we were sort of talking about before is that it's a heavy front loading of information for a for a player for a game system it's probably the the single most important phase of any given game if if most games are decided in the movement phase, if a lot of games have a rock-paper-scissors relationship between certain units, if in the deployment phase you face the wrong unit off against the wrong unit, you're never going to get it across the table to the right unit. Being Giving players the information before they've ever played a single game of how best to deploy the unit so they just don't get squashed because they failed one single phase that, that isn't even a... It's not. It doesn't exactly flag itself up as the fireworks factory of most games. The deployment zone.
1: (laughs) It's not a sort of right. Get get your toys out on the table. Let's crack on to the fun part of the game, which is the shooting. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. It's it's interesting. So so I totally agree. For many games, the deployment phase defines the unfolding uh, game, and we'll get into why we'll get into why I design against that later, but. Um, it's certainly true for sort of more lumbering games like Star Wars Armada or um, Warhammer Fantasy Battle. I think it's less true for smaller table, faster, freer movement games like, you know, like Infinity, where you can activate a unit multiple times and if you need to close a distance, you really can. I think that does obviate the deployment zone being a, surprise package of haha! you didn't know how this game works and now you're in totally the wrong place i do think it depends a little bit on the game but i agree with your premise there which is you don't necessarily and i certainly for almost my entire career of playing warhammer fantasy battle never really gave um enough thought to the deployment zone as really the root cause of all of the potential failures that would then happen later in the game um, and so working backwards from sort of turn three to where you are putting your unit so that they're going to be able to get to the place that you get to is a kind of it's a tactical element but it doesn't signpost itself very well mm. um yeah uh, i think the I think there's a there's a there's a line
0: somewhere between a game that moves maybe quite as fast as Infinity and and a game that maintains battle lines as solidly as something like Warhammer Fantasy Battle. I mean, mm. something like uh, I a mean, Malifaux is another good example where how you deploy your own side and you get your your auras covering your own models. You're maybe less reactive, but it's still your deployment phase uh, and getting the right runners on the right areas and the you know, the the right objective claimers to, to sort of be able to do the correct things. Does, oh, yeah, and and the, impact... the, the
1: inch-perfect movement in that game is often so critical that a missed deployment can, you know, cost you victory points later because you didn't get the one inch you needed into the other side of the board or what have you. Great, we'll take a quick break there.
0: So I would say in, in general terms, there is a let's call it a standard rules of deployment in, in, in miniatures games. Generally, <laughs> standard rules of deployment. <laughs> we'll, we'll,
1: we'll move on to your personal
0: well, war against.
1: Yeah, so so I think you, you actually have to step back one step and this becomes obvious later in the conversation. But before you deploy your models and define your deployment zones before you even put the terrain down. There is a sort of unwritten assumption in quite a lot of games are like you are playing on a square table or a, an mm. evenly square, uh, shaped table. And so I think it isn't always true, but I think most games will tell you what size of game. These days, most games will tell you what size of table uh, they are intending that you play on. And if you don't say it in your rule book, it'll be one of the third questions that's asked in your Facebook group. So having defined that, you've got, you've got some edges of your table and from those edges of your and corners of your table, you've got obvious places where things can arrive from the hills or the forest or whatever's off, off the edge of the table. And so I think like, deployment zones do a couple of things one is that they kick the narrative off for the engagement whatever the engagement is and that's why i think the blind deployment that we talked about from malifaux is so interesting because it throws the literally throws the cards up in the air and says what if what if this engagement started another way and i think that the way that deployment zones are opposite sides of a table along that whole edge is just for me it's just a really like it's a really historical war games Mm. based system where you know the celts would march in on one side and their opponents would march in on the other because they'd come down a hill or they'd come from their village or what whatnot and so you know even in modern settings like you know we're defending this part of the urban city you're you're aggressing from another area like i think that's that's the first part is it defines this sort of narrative space of there is a conflict with two sides and then the fact that you enforce distance between the units on the first turn creates a narrative space it creates a tension it creates a narrative beat at the beginning where there's a approach before the full blooded combat begins and again i'm i'm not necessarily particularly enamored by that but i can understand that there's a narrative beat there which you can choose to remove and for, for, for well thought out reasons but it is there because yeah. you know It's the John Woo staring of the eyes before they start fighting.
0: I think there's a, let's call them a set of assumptions for deployment zones, where it's something on the lines of your table will be square or maybe rectangular. You'll have two sides of the table. You'll deploy your forces within a certain distance of one of the sides. Your opponent would deploy their forces within the same distance of their side. And that's what I'd call a standard set of deployment rules. Mm -hmm. And I think where games start to muck around with that and where that starts to break down, I think starts to be a series of interesting questions. Because one of the obvious things that that then very quickly can't handle is a number of players other than two. I mean, the number of club nights I've gone to where it's been, well, let's play teams because you have to set up on opposite sides of the table and therefore everyone has to be grouped on one side of the table or another. Um, yeah and, and in,
1: pati- in particular it doesn't solve for three players three mm. is a, is an is an ugly number for most deployment systems
0: Yeah, so solving for three is I think uh, a big issue for for tri- traditional deployment standard deployment zones so I think that I would think be I think
1: that that is genuinely why my game designs all attempts to do something different is because we've played enough games of for example triumph and treachery was something we played a lot of when there Mm. were an odd number of players down the club because it sort of it sort of works but the one thing that definitely doesn't work is deployment and somebody always Mm. ends up being piggy in the middle and then a bunch of slightly ugly questions get asked about, you know, why are we ganging up on the person in the middle? Well, they're the nearest. And yeah, mm. and all that's sort of rooted in just purely the deployment zone definition. Mm. No more than yeah. that. And yeah, no, absolutely. Bad play experiences just because you haven't provided a better system.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and figuring out a way to deal with with the with the piggy in the middle situation on any sort of three-player oppositional game, and and the way that it gets so heavily entrenched once you've got deployment zones where two players are closer to one person than each other, Mm -hmm. or just even if you're equidistant, two people just turn their entire armies in one direction because they know that they'll have an easier time just tearing one person to pieces. It's not always, always something personal. It's just okay. Well, they they moved first and they went in that direction so I'm going in that direction and that's just you know uh, how that works
1: I mean there's yeah there's a a question there about how your deployment rules interact with your objective rules Mm. because I think one thing that's intriguing is is the magnetic force of your game between units and enemy units or between units and objectives and I know that might be a scenario specific question But I do think it's quite a core game design question if you're not just attempting to design a combat system with some scenarios. Mm. So once you've
0: got your deployment zones you obviously put your forces onto the table. Two obvious versions of getting that done is either take a single unit or a single model each one at a time or take turns sticking your entire forces down. There are variations blind deployment I've, I've i've seen some games played where people put uh, big old shields between the two sides of the table and everything gets deployed or um writing things out on little note cards to to mm. set out what is where and then deploying it to to get away with blind deployment I mean, I think one thing at a time each is the more usual, probably across most miniatures games, just because it gives you that opportunity to react to what the other person is doing. So talking about Triumph of Treachery, going back a little bit further to um, the Sigma end of Warhammer campaign, where you had, ma- I-, I was playing massive sort of 10, 15,000 point games. And take doing one unit at a time took a you know solidly as long as most normal games of Warhammer would take, and I think there's a lot to be said sometimes for side versus side deployment just to cut through that sort of yeah okay, certainly
1: certainly when we when we used to play big big Saturday games of Warhammer like we would start putting units down and then about five or ten minutes in everyone would just go ah or well, whatever we just put everything else down it's just yeah, just yeah, a bunch it's of just, giant rats now we we'll just put all those down yeah. fine.
0: Just stick it all down. So I I think if I was going to sort of I was going to say something about the standards of of deployment in Minch's Games, it, the main thing I would say to people is, don't just take the standard deployment phase rules, and st- think a little bit about maybe why it is that you're you're suggesting a certain deployment phase. There are pros and cons. There are good things about the standard deployment phase system. Everybody knows it. It's very familiar. I mean, we might talk, uh, you know, a bit more in in relation to that when we talk about some of the the more weird and wild deployment phases. But there are good things. It's it's quick. It's obvious. It sets up a very clear, chunky narrative of I turn up on uh, just over this hill. You turn up over that hill. We know that the no man land no man's land between us is going to become. Uh, a meat grinder of death and destruction. And we have this moment before feeling the, the dawn on our faces for the last time and then running in and, and slamming into each other. But I think I would suggest that people stop and think about the problems that system can create. And if you question it and decide it's right for you, that's great. Go with it. And I think be, if we ever come up with a set of rules, it's don't take things on just because that's what everything else does. There there shouldn't be any standards in your miniatures game design. There shouldn't be any presumptions without you thinking about why you're doing them. And I think one of the big things for that is the the deployment phase is don't just write your strips on either side of the the table. I go, you go. We're, We're now we're all set up. We now know what we've got to do. Don't don't assume that think a little bit about why you're doing it maybe test yourself a little bit with some more peculiar ideas nice Um, at some
1: point we should also do a conversation where we discuss if any of those things in fact are uh unalienable truths of war games you must play with the table this way up and not that way up. (laughs) There's, there's going to be a couple but i don't know what they are well whether
0: there are some rules that cannot be broken
1: yeah are there any rules that cannot be broken all right. that's I mean, another topic.
0: I, yeah, yeah. The, the the way the table, the way up the table goes, I think you've, we've come as close as we can to breaking that one with a billion suns right off the bat.
1: Right, where um, it's someone playing it magnetically on the side of a you, fridge.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike, Mike, Mike shared a fantastic uh, picture with me. From I assume it's from the Facebook group, mm-hmm. or is it, of uh, of someone playing a billion sun with magnetic ships on the side of his his fridge, which is just Top I John. can't Top tell John. you how. <laughs> How much that our hearts when we saw that.
1: Yeah, so fantastic. We'll take a quick break there. As we talked about in a previous section, there's plenty of standard ways to do this, which are, I think, reasonably well established and accepted from the last maybe 20 years. But I think maybe Mm -hmm. we can go back a little bit further than that and find some things which maybe aren't done so much these days or look at some things that, you know, other games have tried more recently and see where where the goodness lies that we might throw into our own games designs.
0: Well, I thought a good place to start is by talking about Gaslands and a Billion Suns mm. uh, because they do have I do like talking about unusual <laughs> you do you do love to talk about your own work. But to to be fair, Gaslands and a Billion Suns both have in different ways very unusual employment phases they have I think pros and cons to them I think we'll talk a little bit about those deployment phases talk a bit about why you chose to to go the way you did with each of those phases (coughs) and then I think I've seen you picking up some props from around the office just then so we'll we'll talk about what bits and pieces you've you've pulled out from your mighty gaming library and uh, I think you've got some some things to talk about there. But we'll, we'll start with Gaslands. The deployment phase in Gaslands, the, of the, the death race scenario, certainly, is lining up cars on a, a racing grid, similar as you might find in a, in a normal race. Other than the obvious thing of that's what they do in races, is there a reason that you wanted to pack everybody's forces into such a tiny area? right at the start of the game when when you were designing gaslands is maybe the desire to get everybody right in each other's faces a driver for um death race being one of the primary scenarios in gaslands or, or was it sort of the other way around
1: that's an interesting question so it is actually the other way around so it started from a it started from wanting to tell the same narrative of the first corner in a in a formula one race being like one of the highlights one of the high points of the chaos of a, of a of an f1 race and then it you know in many regards it then sort of goes into a bit more of a a rhythm that's that's more repeatable after that but that first corner is always chaos and so it felt right that the game should throw everybody together and have a bunch of cinematic action right from the very beginning which we won't talk about now, but ended up being quite problematic in some regards, like a lot of thought and games and design iterations went into trying to make that work more effectively. But I think what actually came out of that was that I realized that because you were all setting up on a line somewhere, which needed to happen because of purely thematic reasons, and then you were setting up these race gates, which was for me, trying to establish a, a an objective system, a, a, a game mode that felt very different to anything else that you would expect to find from a skirmish war game. Maybe, maybe we'll invent a Assassin's Creed game where you have to run a race against some shopkeepers or something, which is quite the same. But
0: Got, got an it, Assassin's Creed it, prototype somewhere.
1: Yes, well, yes, indeed. So actually what designing for that theme taught me was I really, really, really love games that happen in the middle of a table and don't care where the edges of the table were. And I loved I fell in love with it so much that it became almost a design principle for Gaslands and then almost, and then and then basically did become a design principle for a billion sons, which is I, I want to be very permissive and open about what your gaming table looks like. And also because the gaming because because I don't care about the gaming table and how many sides it is it also allows me to be very flexible about how many players there are and so it's weird because that that st- that starting that setup line that start line for the death race wasn't a stroke of games design genius but it taught me loads of things after the fact
0: i think it's um i mean because it's interesting because gaslands came from I think a lot of the design came was driven by the original death race scenario and, hmm. and that idea is that when we we came to other scenarios and we started developing the the spawn point deployments for those other scenarios the sort of drop a penny you you deploy within x many inches of that and because the three player system or, or more than two player system let's say for gaslands was so central there was a certain amount of some of some of the early scenario deployments that ran up to those one player getting picked on by by multiple other player problems do you think that there was a little bit of storing up of problems by the the death race scenario deployment for all other sort of gasland scenarios that maybe created a little bit of a mountain in writing or do you think it's sort of, well, that was a problem that was always going to have to be solved anyway? Was Would there have been a better way around that earlier on, do you think? For, for
1: death think? rates or for, for all the other ones?
0: I think for, for all the other ones. If you were advising yourself from the future to the past, would you say something about...
1: Well, so, w- yeah. So, interestingly, as I've been writing scenarios, as I've been failing to write scenarios for Gaslands recently um, on, my, on my search for a, an interesting solo mode... I start and actually this this is sort of how uh, I worked for um, on on uh, Mystic Skies as well. I started writing things that came from a central point. So you find the center of the table and you measure outwards from that. Um, and so you'll you'll see this a bit in Gasland scenarios where if you have to set up objectives uh, to define a Gasland scenario, are quite often, although not exclusively, measure ask you to measure out from the center of the table because that's a way of saying. I don't care where the edges of the table are. Every table yeah. has a center point, just work outwards from there. And so I think I would do more of that if I went back and rewrote the deployment rules for the um, scenarios in Refuel. now, I would probably go back and just make everything tether from the center point of the table. Because that also gives you a number of ways of saying, well, if there's three players put them out in 360 divided by 320 arcs and then if you've got four put them in 90 degree arcs and so on so i do like but i but i do think the spawn point regardless of where it's tethered from i think the spawn point was a really powerful concept which i ended up building on obviously for um a billion suns But it was, it's a really nice sort of thing of saying, like, here's a portable deployment zone that can go anywhere it likes because it's just a, it's just a point with a, with a radius out from it yeah. rather than being restricted to say, okay, well, I can only use edges or corners or whatnot.
0: I mean, is that, is that a sort of, if that was going to be a design principle, is that a thing about talking about where the focus of a given game and a given scenario is and maybe defining your deployment zones in reference to that? Rather than defining deployment zones in reference to the shape of the table, or or where you happen, where people happen to be stood when they're facing each other across the table, maybe
1: mm, I don't know because it depends so much on it depends so much on the size of the forces involved. So if you're talking about a war band of three to five people, if you're talking about a sort of you know skirmishy size sort of thirty man um, army, if you're talking about a huge mass battle you know huge line of battle of epic tanks or or whatnot like i think those just fundamentally demand different things from the deployment zone thing so it's all it's all nice for me to say oh yeah pick a point and deploy two cars from there but that that's available to me because of the shape of the game and because of the um, the size of the forces so i think it's you know it, it's it's partly to do with the the narrative that you're trying to explain but i think it's also some practical concerns
0: so in reference to the 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 gaslands death race setup there's an obvious thing that I think, a lot of maybe first-time players or people playing their first <clears throat> game of Gaslands that come a- uh, come across where because everybody is is right shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder at the start mm-hmm. of game of Gaslands and fundamentally it is a game of combat and carnage, inevitably there's a first game hairpin into the person next to you, head-on collision which, I mean, there was a certain amount of there were, there were times when we were fiddling of ways of enforcing rules that would stop that from happening. And there is an unfun thing that occurs in yep. some early games where people do that. And I think it's fair to say the decision was made to to say that this is just one of the learning points of the game. You'll do it once and you'll laugh uproariously when you do it that once. And then you'll probably never do it again because it's not as funny as it seemed when you did it. Is there a line sometimes when you have to accept that you're not going to write rules to save people from themselves? You're maybe just going to give them a, a moment where they understand that sometimes, you know, freedom comes with a
1: comes with a cost. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I genuinely don't know because I think this, I, I I metaphorically lose sleep over this one. Which is, you know, when you're trying when you're trying to write slightly off the beaten track rule systems. I mean, look any any war game that you come to. I think it's pretty difficult to assume that the first game that you play before either of you has ever played this game before and you don't know what the army lists do and you don't know how the mechanics work like it's ridiculous to imagine that that first game will be an exquisite moment of gaming ecstasy like you'll probably take a couple of ter- uh, games to figure out how or, or, you know just to figure out where the where the the most delightful parts of the of the game and the flavor and what you like about it. And so I think in some respects it's self-flagellation to assume that your game must be absolutely exquisite straight out of the gate. But of mm. course like that's that's what we are trying to push for like mm. it's if if you just attack the game design by saying well it doesn't matter if people have a bad time then you're not going to get a good game but there is a there's a there's a curve there right like where you just try and make that first that first thing as nice as you can get it, and better and better and better. And then at the point where you're discussing, like, should we introduce a specific rule where ghosts, where cars ghost through each other for the first activation to stop people from, to like really show people that it's it's bad to try and have fun in the first turn of gaslands and yeah. just be really sensible and put your foot down and driving a straight right. It's like, well, well, I think, them, I think let them have their fun, and then they'll have fun the first time, and then they'll realize it's not fun the second time, so they'll also have fun the second time because they won't do it, and that's all that's all good.
0: I think yeah. I think sometimes you write those rules that give everybody a bit of pain. I mean, it, the 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 ghosting versions of various fixes. We're going to put everybody through a, a slightly less fun experience in in learning a, a set of rules, exceptions, and alternatives, mm-hmm. and things that only happen in the first activation, in order to save a a slightly smaller percentage of people from a much shorter period of unfun. Mm-hmm. You know. And yeah, and I think I think sometimes you sort of you have to sort of pays your money and takes your choice. Great, we'll take a quick break there. So they're talking about gaslands, talking about the spawn point deployment. You're you're hungry to talk about a billion suns and the entirely sort of left field
1: deployment that is a billion suns. Um, it's, you- it's not as left field as all that. I mean, like. All it is, is it's just saying fast forward one and a half turns. Let's get to the, let's get to the good bit. Mm. Um, And so in many regards, all I'm saying is I'm bored of turn one, like (laughs) boo walking forwards, four inches, boo to it. I don't want it. I'm not interested in it. So what I'm trying to do is fast forward to the middle of the game where everything is already stood in each other's shadows. And, you know, then, then there's a few, then there's a few funky questions about, you know, whether or not people should be allowed to deploy, behind each other and all, what all that means but because of the kind of game it is which is a spaceship game where things are relatively agile um i actually i'm not i i'm not 100 sure whether things are relatively agile because things could deploy behind you or the other way around but i mean that that the billion suns had um a deployment system where you put down jump points these little pennies and then you and place ships within those right from pretty much the very beginning but quite early versions of the game had restrictions about how close uh, you could deploy your jump points Mm. to other people's jump points because i was still thinking in terms of old-fashioned like a deployment zone in its truest sense is merely a distance between the closest two units to try Mm. and create that narrative beat and say can i fire a you know a magical arrow at your hero on turn one before Mm. you get a chance to move a single model in your army or not and the Mm. deployment zone normally says no you cannot let's at least have some fun with our toys before somebody starts magically arrowing them Mm. um and a billion sons just says well what if everybody's magical arrows are already shoved down each other's throats like cut to that moment in the battle let's go um Mm. which is i think for me like entrenched in the cinematic experience that i wanted like the battle of clan defo from the starship troopers movie it's like a chaotic thing where the bugs start shooting energy and everything's crashing into each other and it's all swirling on different planes of you know not all the spaceships are arranged in a nice mm. two-dimensional plane and everything and so that just became a deployment phase way of doing it mm. we mentioned already blind deployment um in the previous section um from malifaux and malifaux taught me this which is The first time I played blind deployment, like, you know, a little imp started with a giant snippy robot spider next to it. And this giant snippy robot spider went, hello, crunch. Mm -hmm. And like, it was not fair, but immediately a story was being told where I talk about it quite a lot, but the technology advance there for me was, wait a minute, you don't have to have units that are 24 Mm -hmm. inches apart. You can do something different. And Mm -hmm. then you like, Blind deployment in Malifaux isn't fair because the game hasn't been built around it, but what if you built a game around that to make it so that it was okay? Mm, uh, not absolutely. that it was okay, but make it that it was like intrinsically supported by the rest of the superstructure of the game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one, one of the things I like, uh, you know, really like about Billion Sons is it doesn't force you to deploy your, your jump points on top of each other. It doesn't force you to deploy them 24 inches apart. And in fact, across three tables, you can you can rather wonderfully have one table where the jump points are dumped right on top of each other and everyone's very in their faces. Another table, you can have jump zones that are four feet apart from each other and everyone's quietly mining their own little areas and and sort of having a bit of an
1: agreement. One thing that I'm quite pleased with in the jump point S- um, system is that when somebody puts a jump point down and the other person goes ha I can put a jump point down right on top of you which seems like a really good idea and then the game escalates and mm. now you want to put down a battleship or something or a destroyer something with a big minimum range mm. and then you're like damn it I wish my jump point was like 18 inches away from your jump point not right on top mm. of it and that moment of frustration I think is a really interesting because you thought you had some power and you just abused the power by putting my deployment zone inside your deployment zone because that feels really powerful and broken because everything you've ever been told is that deployment zone should always be 24 inches apart and then it turns out damn it I did want that in some cases Um, and then Mm. you have to go and re-engineer that with your other activities in the game.
0: I mean, this thing, I, it's one of the things I think is great about the game is that those moments define the, the story. It's like you put two jump points on each other, then, then you're looking at little fighter craft and a really sort of toe-to-toe in close, you know, brawl if you're going to be doing any fighting, you know, as opposed to if you're further apart and you're sort of, I'm coming with aggression, but I'm deploying 36 inches away. Okay, well, this is when you're deploying the planet smashers and you're you're blasting people from across the table. And so, I think sorry, go ahead. I just to say you know it's like I don't it, 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 to me it's interesting that dropping your deployment on somebody else's deployment zone isn't inherently more aggressive and more escalating. <laughs> it's depending on how on how things then develop it can be Hmm. a less aggressive thing than dropping the deployment zone further away because you're thinking i'm dropping it further away because i need the minimum yeah because i've got some
1: cruise missiles with your name on
0: absolutely yeah and so i I just for me it's one of those things where it really it it helps to it builds a story so quickly to my mind it is i mean because i i remember there, there were early parts where we were sort of Defining out where you could put jump points and and where you couldn't and what the minimum distances were and I don't you know there was an early point where we just said well why why can't you just drop a jump point on top of the other person's jump point what what's the downside to it does it just I think do-
1: Rufus R- Rufus suggested it and I think he was just bored with all the, the the measuring he was like why do I have to measure this why can't I just put it wherever I like <laughs> well,
0: well it's just it's, it's right, a
1: qu- and it's and then you know this is a great you know
0: somebody asks a question and if you can't think of a good reason to say. No, let's not do it. At least give it one, one run through. At least see what happens when you, when you pull that lever and you and you you tweak that element of the game because something
1: amazing might come out of it. So as we as we've been talking, I've I've sort of draw. I've made a slight realization which there's a there's a there's a historical path here that I hadn't really realized. But one of the reasons that I was trying to shoot for this deployment system where you can deploy whatever you like. Wherever you like, the sort of wherever you like thing comes from partly comes from Malifaux blind deployment, but it also comes from the experience of writing perilous tales, where what I was trying to do was a couple things. One was create a a sort of a building tension, but the thing that's more relevant to this discussion was. I was trying to, to, to create a fog of war situation which with a tabletop miniatures game where like by definition you put a little tank on the table and say now you know there's a tank there there's been a couple of interesting examples of trying to create a fog of war system and one of the things that was inspirational for Perilous Tales which I think informed quite directly the I don't know what's going to arrive and where elements of A Billion Suns is um, All Quiet on the Martian Front which is a it's a slightly flawed game like there's a couple of actual proper design problems with it but i'm really really enamored by the overarching game and it's an asymmetrical game where one person plays a bunch of sort of world war one uh, americans or british and the other one plays a bunch of tripods and you know engine martian engines of, of destruction and so it's a really asymmetrical game where one person's got incredibly tall incredibly powerful things and the brits m- most of their units have got some special rule that means when you deploy them you don't deploy them you deploy a pair of tokens and then you write down on your little scrap of paper which of the two tokens the unit is and after you've deployed like you know five or eight of these units you've got like this mess of little tokens little blip counters you know i guess i guess probably going back as far as space hulk because i think it might even share a designer i don't know did rick Priestley work on space hulk
0: I, well, I mean he must have been in the room
1: he must have been in the room anyway so yeah it's a it's a Pri- priestly's involved somewhere and i thought that that was really delightful because what happens is the first turn of moving units up is is magically transformed into a sort of cat and mouse game where instead of just pushing everything up four inches, some things could move faster. But if you did move them faster, you would reveal that they were a tank and not um, just some rubbishy blip marker. Mm. And so I think that turns the deployment phase on its head in an interesting way, because it says what you deploy is suspicion you don't deploy units.
0: I think w- one of the things about uh, the way that Billion Suns does it deploys right in the middle of the action and, uh, and, and sort of right into the game and to sort of try and maybe talk about some of the, the downsides, because I, I think we're both big fans of the way that it works for, you know, obviously we'd done it if we hadn't been. But one of the downsides, I think, is a Billion Suns game plays out of a basically three turns and I think by and large the reason for that is that in my opinion a lot of miniatures games play out over three turns it's just they then have like two or three turns either side of those three turns where it wasn't really playing out it was sort of defining itself and coming into view and you were figuring out what the story was going to be and what thing was going to be the hill on which people died etc etc and A Billion Sons just goes Well, if we can take the three turns that really matter and make them bigger uh, and and make them, you know, crunchier and deeper, let's just cut to the chase and make and there I have seen people saying, Is is it worth clearing off my table for a game that lasts three turns? And it's sort of a turn is such a a weird comment, Matt. (laughs) Well, the thing is, it's like a a turn isn't a discrete period of time. A, A turn isn't do you know what I mean? A turn could be anything. You don't know how long a turn takes or how but complicated it's, but, but or it's, it's funny
1: because then you compare it to Gaslands, and Gaslands has probably three turns on average but there's like 18 activations in it and so it's yeah. like well, time is fungible man like game time doubly so
0: i mean that that is what that is one of the weird things of course because did, you, Gaslands... did you have
1: 90 minutes of pushing spaceships around and having a good time <laughs> because that's yeah. the exact number of turns and i mean
0: that is that's one of the interesting things about um about billion suns is because it it has locked into it these little if you if you have a little study of the contract system, you'll see that it's locked in to go to three turns. People are yeah. like, oh, hello, it, it goes to three turns. What's that all about? Whereas as you look at Gaslands, Gaslands takes three turns, but it doesn't tell you up front that it's going to take three turns. And you don't really count the turns because there are the gear phases and everything's going on, you know? Mm. And it, if you told people up front that this is a three-turn war game, they would probably have a similar reaction That some of the people have had to to some of the parts of billion sums. It's
1: been a while since I played it, but doesn't Infinity have a pretty short turn clock as well? I think, I think, I think. Anyway, I can't quite remember. I I, likely people are shouting at me now, but um, (laughs) I think that I think that you know it's probably it's a bit like it's a bit it's it's another one of those areas where norms have been established in. Uh, at least experienced wargamers minds where if you break from them it's like it's like a it's like a narrative violation and people are just like nope that doesn't work like you're supposed to have six turns of a thing um yeah. because that's what that's what 40k has and that's fine and actually you have to be really careful and aware of that yeah. stuff because um as it turns out if you only have half the number of turns people feel like you've taken half of their sandwich away so yeah that's it yeah it's super super interesting that
0: yeah, but i i i think i think it's a very very valid point. I think sometimes we see game design as this sort of playground. I, I've said before, the best game to play is designing games. We see it as a playground of sort of inventive thought and and pulling these things around and having fun with them. And ultimately, you are then throwing them at somebody who who is expecting to have a relaxed fun time. That you know, they're they're not. They don't want to be part of our. installation art project or something (laughs) you know they they they, they've come to the tabletop for a good time without too much you know brain loading and a brain loading of a very specific type a lot of the time you know people want some crunchy granularity and they want to be forced to calculate things but they don't want things coming in like left side and whapping them in the you know yeah yeah. they don't don't want
1: they don't want everything that they know to be questioned
0: Mm and so yeah and i think that is that i suppose that is the, the big, big risk of, of when we break those rules those unwritten rules of standards is you know how much complexity load are you putting on your your players and i think the important point is to always make sure that you're getting something in return mm. you know don't don't put them through that just because you you want to to push the envelope put them through it because you want to say hey look there's, there's really something sweet on the other side of this. There's some real, you know, real goodness um, out the other end of it. So when I when I said that we were we were going to spend this half talking about some sort of unusual out of the box thinking deployment zones, Mike leapt up from his desk and went went running around his little office and pulling books off the shelves. Well, and I... one
1: one thing that occurred to me is that it, d- it depends what kind of a gaming group you're in or what kind of setup you what kind of um, habits you've fallen into. But I think one thing that is really true what I was doing was I was grabbing my uh, copy of Warhammer Fantasy Battle Third Edition. Uh, Aha, which, right this is not the original copy that i had the original copy i had was completely fallen to pieces because it would existed in my school library and i just used to get it out every week <laughs> but even as even as early as this you've got the sort of last stand or the kind of ambush style deployments mm. and actually that, that makes me think that the first game i ever played was battle of little bighorn um the waddington's game and that in itself is a last stand setup where mm. half of the where one side sets up right in the center of the table and the other um, has the cavalry coming from one side and the, the the infantry coming from another, and so I think that narrative scenario play has done a lot of messing about with deployment zones, and quite yeah. often they end up just sort of changing the shape or changing the proximity yeah. of them. But they all the best ones of them are asking the same thing, which is: is the story starting in a different place? Are the are the dynamics of power different? And all of that stuff is great to mess around with. And I think that a little bit depends on how keen you are to create a game which feels like it's even handed between the two players to have like a, a battle that either one could win or whether it's trying really hard to, um, or trying much more interested in trying to tell a strong, flavorful story where someone's going to lose, but it's how they lose um, Mm. is the important question. So I think there's a lot of potential deployment stuff from, you know, all those little edge scenarios and stuff, the ones where units don't turn up where you expect them to turn up. You don't get full control over where things are. You don't know what turn they're going to turn up from reinforcements, all that stuff. Mm. Um, and I think that whilst I like all that, I suppose it's fun to mess about with, is there, are there are there ideas in that which are essentially just dice rolls? And if you took the dice roll away and made them more about asking questions of players to sort of create that, could you give them something that was a bit more of a toy box and less of just a thing that happens to them?
0: Mm. I mean, maybe this is something we might end up talking at a later point. But I guess there's, there's the places in which you break the rules that you set for yourself, which is often what turns up in scenarios. Often mm. scenarios and special rules say, OK, I set out a set of rules for me, for my system. And now I'm gonna I'm gonna break them to give you a, an alternative experience versus the the rules that you're the soft rules of of standard miniatures game design that you're breaking when you write write your game, you know? And and whose whose rules are you breaking and why are you breaking them? But I think we'll 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 certainly have to talk about designing scenarios and and breaking your own rules versus everybody else's rules. I was, I was going to
1: say, at the point of the conversation where we get back to recommending that the first thing you do as a games designer, as a budding games yes. designer, is write some scenarios for a game you already know. Feels like the time <laughs> that the conversation ends. So with it, with yeah. full fervor, we will recommend <laughs> that you try yes. breaking deployment zones by simply writing scenarios for an existing game and see why deployment zones are the shape they are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Take, take a game that you love try writing a scenario with different deployment zones and figure out why it is that they have the deployment zones in the game already. And, you know, why why they made the decisions they made, because they probably made them for good reasons. They're, they're You know, a lot of the those decisions were made for by smart people um, thinking very hard at the time.
1: He's not referring to us. It's like... <laughs> Great. All right. Well, thank you, Glenn. That was a very good okay.
0: chat fantastic wherever you found this there will be a comment section let us know what you think and what you'd like us to talk about in the future if you're on the podcast check out our faces on youtube see what we look like uh reach out to us on twitter or any of various social medias but until next time it's goodbye for now Bye. bye